Hey, thanks for listening to the Bellevue Christian Church podcast. We're a church in Bellevue, Pennsylvania, where ordinary people are learning to live everyday life like Jesus. We believe that one way to learn that life is by engaging with an ancient but active collection of books called the Bible every single week. If this teaching leaves you with a question about the content or a story of what God is doing in your life, please send a message to hello at bellevuechristian.church because we'd love to hear from you. All right, why don't you go ahead and take a seat and we'll, uh, we'll jump into our sermon this morning. Can I get an amen for that extra hour last night? Anyone? Amen. All right, we're here. Just wanted to make sure. Um, so I want to start this morning by telling uh, just a little bit about, um, in July 2017, it was about a year and a half ago, I was had the opportunity to go to Cairo um, in Egypt and to Alexandria uh, and to visit with some friends um, and to, to see what God is doing sort of in that part of the world. And it was a really great experience. Um, we did this sort of typical Egypt things like this, um, where we saw the Sphinx and the pyramids. Um, there, my friends took pictures from different angles of this, so it just looks like I'm kissing the air as well. Uh, this is the one that worked. Um, and so we visited Egypt. We did, got to see a lot of things, but one of the most moving experiences was some of the churches we visited. Um, at one point, we visited this church, which is St. Mark's Coptic Cathedral. Um, Coptic Church is in the news a lot a couple of years ago. Um, but a Cop- the Coptic Church is a strain of Christianity that extends all the way back um, to, the, to the early centuries um, of the church. Uh, they were started by uh, St. Mark the Evangelist, according to the story um, behind this church. Um, and there's, there's 82 million people in Egypt. About 10% of them are Christians. Um, and so they're definitely in the minority. There are some Catholics and Anglicans, um, but a lot of them are Coptic Christians. And so we got a tour of this cathedral, and we were able to explore and to see. Um, we went on a tour with a guy named Abuna Shenuda, which is the priest there. It just means Father Shenuda. Um, and we explored the church grounds. We saw the relics of St. Mark and, and, you know, things that are attached to him. Um, and then after the tour was over, we went to another part of the church grounds, and we saw this little chapel. Um, and this chapel um, is a chapel off to the side of the cathedral, and it's a chapel where the men, or the men and women worship separately on Sundays, and the women worship over here along with some of the children. Um, and in December 2016, which is seven months before this trip, there was actually a, um, a suicide bomb was detonated in this church, um, and in the end it killed 29 people and, 40, and injured 47 others. Um, And when you went into the cathedral, you could actually still see um, smoke and residue on the column there. It's hard to see in this picture um, from the explosion. If you look at the murals on the walls, you could see chips out of them from where the shrapnel had hit um, on that day. And then when you go outside as well, there's a picture of those who were wounded or a picture of those who were killed. um, And then there's a glass covering a part of the wall where an injured person had leaned um, while they were waiting for help. And they covered it just to remember um, that what had happened there. And for me, I've read a lot about this kind of stuff happening throughout the world for my whole life. You know, I had a pretty weird upbringing. I grew up Christian, and I grew up enjoying books like Jesus Freaks and Fox's Book of Martyrs before I went to bed. That's like what I was doing in junior high. Um, I'm sure not many of you were doing that. So I was reading stories of persecution and what people were experiencing around the world. But when I saw this, I was moved deeply. 
There are very few instances in my life where I can be caught weeping about something. But this is an experience of mine where I point back to, and I was moved so deeply by what I saw there, by Christians suffering because of the gospel, um, because of somebody connected with ISIS, that it hurt me so deeply that I was weeping about it. And at the end, we got to talk to a little bit about, to Abuna Shenouda, about some of what he experienced and some of the aftermath of that. But one of the things that he said kind of surprised me and it struck me. And he said that we should say thank you to those who attacked us because there are even more Christians now. Instead of closing up shop after that, their experience, they decided to keep worshiping. They decided to keep meeting. They decided to figure out what it meant to be a fearless and bold church in a setting where unofficially they were being persecuted. That's one story among many that I could tell around the world of people who have that kind of experience when it comes to their worship life and when it comes to meeting together for church. And in fact, it's similar to the kinds of stories we see in the, in the, in the book of Acts, which we're going to unpack a little bit today. But this morning, I want to consider a different question. What happens when you live in a context, as we do, where the church isn't threatened or persecuted, but where it's for the most part tolerated, as it is in the United States? What does it look like to be the church when you're not under threat, as the Egyptian Christians are, as they were in the book of Acts, and in fact, you're actually mostly tolerated? Today we're going to continue a series called Spirit-Filled Church, where we're discussing 12 marks of the Spirit-Filled community in the book of Acts. We're going to be in the book of Acts, which is, a, which is a story of the unfolding church and where God was unfolding his power and presence on the life of the church. And we're exploring some different things that we see marking the life of the church. And we're asking, are those marking our church as well? Do we look similar to the kind of church that we see in the book of Acts? And this morning, as we go into the ninth mark, what I want us to say that whether we're tolerated or whether we're threatened as a church, the Spirit ought to to make us into a fearless church. In short, no matter what people are saying about the church, I hope that nobody could ever say that the church doesn't have guts, that the church isn't resolved, that the church isn't determined, that the church isn't brave and daring and courageous and unf- we figure out fearless. And my hope is that whether the church is threatened or tolerated, we figure out what it means to be fearless. If you have your Bibles this morning, open up to Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 31. Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 31. We're going to read this together as we go. Um, if you've never opened up a Bible before, Acts is a, is a fifth book of the New Testament. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which are accounts about Jesus' life. And then Acts is the book immediately after that, which is the account of the earliest churches. And so we have that in our Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, if you're sitting in the back, you can download an app called YouVersion, Y-O-U-Version, and you can read the Bible that way. And I admit this sermon is going to be just a little bit long today just because of some of the things we have going on this morning. But I know that you guys are a church that is going to be here and that God's going to speak to us. Let's pray. Jesus, we know that you are here with us, that you are present, that you meet us in this room. Lord, we know that your word of God is not old and ancient, but it is living and active and new every day. That, Lord, you have something to speak to us, whether we're coming in here, we're not sure why we're here, whether we just came for the dedication and we haven't been in church in a while, we know that you have a word for us. Lord, we know that if we're coming in here skeptical about all of this, and we've, just, we've been burned by the church in the past, but we're trying it out again, I pray that you have a word for us today. For those of us who have been here week after week, Lord, I pray that you have a fresh word for us. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. So last week, we explored Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, and Chuck talked about what it meant to be a helping church. In Acts chapter 3, verse 1 through 10, what happens is the disciples are going out, and they're heading into the temple to pray, because at this time, their lives really overlap still with their Jewish lives. And so they're going to the temple to pray, and they see a man there who's paralyzed from the waist down. He's been there like this forever, as long as people can remember. Everybody just knows this guy is the paralyzed guy. We'll just call him Ted. Ted's been there for a long time. He's been like this. The disciples walk past. 
past him. They, they think they're, they're going to ask him, he's going to ask them for money. But instead, what they do is they help him out. They heal him. They pronounce healing over him in the name of Jesus. They lift him up. And now he's singing and dancing. And it's a big deal because that's not a normal part of everyday life, right? If you're first century Jerusalem and all of a sudden this guy who's been paralyzed for your whole life gets up and starts leaping and dancing, all of a sudden people are like, maybe this is kind of news. And so people are starting to gather, right? Somebody got their phone out, put a Snapchat story out there. People are paying attention. This is news for the day. And so everybody's gathering from all over the place to find out what's happening. How did this go down? And Peter sees an opportunity. And so he gets up and he preaches a sermon and he preaches it all about Jesus. And we could go into that if we had time, but we don't. And he preaches it all about Jesus. But here's the summary in Acts chapter 3, verse 16. It says, by faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you all can see. And so his sermon is basically to say, look, this isn't just us, right? It's not just Peter and John. We don't just, we don't have the credibility for this. This isn't, we weren't trained in how to heal. This isn't our thing. It's not coming from us. It's not our power, but it's coming from Jesus. You remember Jesus a couple weeks ago, he was crucified on a, on a hill outside the city. And then you started hearing rumors that he rose again. And now you see this church being, the spirit of God being poured out upon us and we're doing these things. It's it's not us. It's actually Jesus working in and through us. And so he, pr- he pronounces and he preaches this sermon, and now things begin to get tense because he's gotten up there and he's began to preach about Jesus. And so at this point, the religious authorities are starting to become concerned. So if you have your Bibles, we're in Acts chapter 4, verse 1. It says, the priest and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees, which were a certain sect of, uh, of Jews at that time, came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. And it says they were greatly disturbed. Everyone say disturbed. Because the apostles were teaching the people and they were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And so the religious authorities at the time are starting to get a little bit nervous, right? Because these new guys have come along and they're starting to undermine their authority. They're teaching, one thing in particular, they're teaching that in Jesus, you can rise from the dead. That Jesus has risen from the dead and through faith in him, the same thing can happen to you. And this upset people because it didn't fit with what the Sadducees believed. See, the Sadducees were a Jewish group of people who believed that there was no resurrection from the dead. And now Peter and John are coming along and saying, no, there is resurrection from the dead. And not only that, these guys, all the Jewish leaders thought they had squashed the Jesus movement, right? He had been crucified outside the city. This was over. This is how you end movements. You crucify their, their, their leader in a public and shameful way, and then everybody else gives up, and they go find a new fad to follow later. But that didn't happen, right? They're continuing to grow. These guys aren't giving up. They're, they came back, and they're, they're still here, and it's getting upsetting. And so these guys are probably getting a little bit worried, right? Because these are the leaders. These are the authority. These are the guys who have worked really hard to get there, and they're probably thinking, look, We're not about to be put out of a job or have our authority undermined by some fishermen who haven't had the education that we've had, who have come along now and are proclaiming this Jesus and healing this guy. Right? We don't want this. We've worked really hard to get where we went. We went to the right schools. We put the right stuff on our resumes. We were in the right clubs in high school. We did all the right things. And now Peter and John, these fishermen, are coming along and they're undermining everything. They're risking the whole, the whole world as they know it. They're risking it, and they're putting it on a weak foundation. And so, the, and so what ends up happening next is they, put it, they arrest them. It says in verse 3, they seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail till the next day. 
um, because they didn't know what else to do with them. And so, but many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. If you're keeping track of those numbers, again, through Acts, you see this church continues to grow despite conditions that say it shouldn't grow. It grew to 3,000 in Acts chapter 2. Now another 2,000 people have been added at this point by Acts chapter 4. It's a 5,000-person church. Again, that's less than the population of Bellevue, but that's all the Christians in the whole world, and it's a lot more than the 120 people we started with in Acts chapter 1. And then it says this. You got all the big shots getting together. It says, The next day the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. All the people with authority and power got together. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so was Caiaphas. Um, Caiaphas, by the way, was also at Jesus' trial. Um, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them, By what power or what name did you do this? And so at this point, Peter and John are on trial. It's not a real trial. It's not a legitimate trial. But they're being tried by the guys who are in authority um, in, in, in their religion. And so um, as this is happening, they're being put on this trial. And what's, and what's happening here, and the issue is, is they're not actually able to see the fact that this guy has been healed. Instead of joining with everybody and saying, wow, praise the Lord, this guy who's been here every day, all day, for years, has suddenly been healed, they are distracted by the fact that they did it in the name of Jesus. They did it in the wrong way. They broke with the custom. They didn't do it like everybody had been taught, and now they're doing it in the name of this person that they had just crucified as an enemy, and now they're doing it as if he's still alive and still active and still has power. And in response, Peter launches into this impromptu speech. It says this in Acts chapter 4, verse 8. Then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. Everyone say filled. And then he starts to speak. Now this is exactly what Jesus said would happen. In Luke chapter 11, verses 11 through 12, Jesus tells his disciples, he says, look, some people aren't going to like you. They're going to drag you before authorities. They're going to drag you before synagogues. But here's what I want you to do when that happens. It says this, when you're brought before synagogues, rulers, and authorities, don't worry about what, how you'll defend yourselves or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. That's exactly what's happening to Peter right here. Right? He's come, they're in this situation where they're being dragged before the courts, just as Jesus said would happen. They remember their discipleship course of Jesus. They're like, okay, what did Jesus say about this? Holy Spirit's going to give me the words I need to say. Holy Spirit fills them up, and they begin to speak. And here's the little speech that they give, or a summary of it. It says, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account to today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And so Peter launches into this speech under the power of the Spirit, where he does a few things. One, he undermines the whole reason that they're there. He says, look, is the reason we're here because you're upset that this guy, did you like forget what happened yesterday? This guy who's been asking for money for years, sitting outside the gate, is now healed. He's standing up. He's going back to work. And you guys are calling us in here because we did it in the name of Jesus? They're calling him out. He said, look, we just did a random act of kindness, and you guys are upset about it. And so they call him out. But then what he does next is he starts preaching Jesus, because that's what Peter always does. In Acts chapter 2, when he's filled with the Spirit and he sees this opportunity, he begins to preach Jesus. In Acts chapter 3, where he has this opportunity where people are gathered around because of healing, what does he do? He starts to preach Jesus. In Acts chapter 4, he's now brought before this court, and he's the one on trial. What does he do? He goes on the offense, and he starts to preach Jesus. Peter doesn't waste an opportunity to talk about what Jesus has done and that he has risen from the dead. 
And then my favorite verse, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, not my favorite verse, but one of them, Acts chapter 4, verse 13, it says, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, everyone say ordinary. They were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Sometimes, there's, well, not sometimes, there's a phrase that we use around here a lot that says we describe discipleship as ordinary people learning to live everyday life like Jesus. You heard Bev say it earlier, ordinary kids learning to live everyday life like Jesus. Um, I've had people come up to me before and say, I don't like the word ordinary. And I say, why? Well, and then usually the answer is something like, well, it makes us sound ordinary. Um, and the reality is it's true. And one of the reasons I use that word is because it comes from a passage like this. Here's the reality, is when ordinary people like us do unordinary things, it points to our extraordinary Savior. That when ordinary people like us do unordinary things that we should not be able to do, it points to someone beyond us. When extraordinary people do extraordinary things, everybody's like, that's what they do. It's because they're extraordinary. When ordinary people do extraordinary things, it points beyond them to somebody else. It says there must be something going on here. And that's exactly what these Pharisees and teachers of the law and Sadducees realize. They say, look, ordinary guys shouldn't be able to do this. So maybe we should take note of it. They haven't been to the right seminaries. They haven't been to the right schools. They don't have the right degrees. They didn't, they didn't go to as many Toastmasters as I did. They, they didn't do all this stuff, but all of a sudden, here they are preaching the gospel, and, and we don't know what to do about it. And they take note of it, and they said, they've been with Jesus. We'll just get out our moleskins and take a little note there. And so that's the situation that's happening here is a man was healed. Then Peter and John start to preach the gospel. They're dragged before a court and arrested for no good reason. And then they surprise their accusers by their boldness. And now their accusers aren't sure what to do, right? Because they realize they actually don't have a case. They've been called out that this isn't about the healing at all, but this is about them doing it in the wrong way, according to these leaders. And so they have no choice but to let them go. But the first thing they do is they start to make some threats, this is what people do when they're scared of losing position and authority, is they start to make threats because they don't know what else to do and they have no real case. And this is Acts chapter 4, verse 14. So it's this. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them. So at this point we find out, you know, I don't remember what we named our guy. Ted has been, he, the guy who was healed the day before, he's just standing in the room this whole time. Like, hey, I'm here, just in case everybody forgot. I was healed. Physical evidence that something actually happened in my life. So they could see this guy. There was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do to these men? They asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. And then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And so they're stuck. And what they decide to do is make some threats. And they say, look, if you, yeah, we, don't, we don't really have anything against you, but if you keep doing this, something's going to happen, right? They don't, know, they, don't, they don't know what to say, but something's going to happen to you guys. And, and you know, stop preaching the name of Jesus or else. And so Peter and John, though, refuse to be intimidated because they know these threats are empty. And even if they aren't, they can't be intimidated. It says this in verse 19. It says, but Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes to listen to you or to him. You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. That's one of my favorite definitions of what evangelism is, is that when you're telling people about Jesus, what you're essentially doing is not being able to help but speak of what you've seen and heard. Evangelism really is just overflow. It's what you, happens when you experience something so good that you can't help but talk about it. 
A lot of us are evangelists for a lot of things in our lives. You have a product that you love or something that you think is amazing. And the overflow of that is you tell all of your friends to use the same product. It's the same thing with Jesus, though. Is that when we love Jesus, we've experienced his transformation. The overflow of that is I can't help but speak about what I've seen and heard. We're all evangelists for something. The only question is, are we evangelists for what we've experienced in Jesus? Um, And so again, what they end up doing, though, is they make further threats, it says, in chapter 4, verse 21. It says, after further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. In other words, they're scared because now they're popular. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. So after further threats, they let them go. And it's from this point onward, from chapter 4, verse 21 onward, that you see escalating persecution against the church. Um, That after this, there's a point where a man named Stephen is killed, and he's known as the first martyr. Later, a person named James is also killed. And then in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, you see this. It says, on that day, this is after Stephen was killed, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered through Judea and Samaria. And so it started with threats, and then it turned into unofficial violence, then it turned into officially sanctioned violence, as now it's spreading throughout the whole church. And this is what the early church was experiencing. And this is what many Christians around the world experience as well, including those that I met in Egypt. Now, a question I want to ask, this is rhetorical, please don't raise your hands. How many of you have had an experience where you've been uh, thrown into prison, dragged into a court, and threatened with physical violence for proclaiming that Jesus has in fact risen from the dead? My assumption is nobody. I surely haven't had that experience. And I have a feeling that the reason that none of us have had that experience of being thrown into prison, dragged before a court, and then threatened to not talk about Jesus ever again is because of where and when we were born. That we often don't have the same kind of experience. I want to talk about some differences between us in the first century when Acts was written. Um, In the first century, the church was threatened right? Repeatedly, right? They were, seen, they were seen as a threat, so therefore they were threatened. And instead, what we experience in our century is that we're mostly tolerated, at least in our part of the world. That we live in a cultural moment where the church is mostly tolerated. Yes, there is increased antagonism toward the church. Yes, people are upset with the church about certain things that they believe, um, and especially in university settings. And there are certain restrictions placed on how churches can practice their beliefs. For example, not praying publicly in schools and things like that. But for the most part, Christians are are very tolerated alongside a lot of other religions as well. On Friday, I was in Illinois. Um, uh, Julie and I had had to take a quick trip to Illinois over the past few days. And while we were there, I was working on the sermon in a McDonald's in Shelbyville, Illinois. I had my Bible out. I was working on my sermon. I was listening to Christian music um, on my headphones, not, you know, out loud because I'm not one of those weirdos. But again, I was, I was just doing Christian stuff in public. And then next to me, there was, uh, there was like four people having this raucous Bible conversation about something in Job, who knows what. And then next to me, there was people wearing like shirts from Christian conventions. I think it's safe to say that our cultural climate might be a little bit different than what they were experiencing in the first century. In addition to that, like if I go down a common place in the north side, without a doubt, I will go down a common place, this coffee shop, and I will see somebody writing in a journal, and they'll have a Bible out. Usually it's like the telltale sign that they're a Christian if you're writing in a journal in a coffee shop. And it's a pretty normal experience, again, because we're very tolerated, right? We're not, we're not, for the most part, not really threatened, especially not our lives. 
Um, but in addition to that, here's another difference. The early church was a minority, right? I said there were 5,000 people at this time. That's less than the population of Bellevue is the number of Christians in the whole world at the time. We, on the other hand, are in the millions. In fact, we're, in the, we're a mostly uh, powerful majority, even if we're a very divided majority. Um, in other words, one of the things that I think is worth noting about this story is that we're less in the position of Peter and John who are being dragged before the authorities. And as Christians in this country, we're actually more in the position of the authorities. We're actually more of the ones who are in charge because we're a powerful majority, even if divided. Now, that's not to say that the church doesn't experience any threats or any antagonism, as I already mentioned, but that they're not usually threats to life. For example, here are some of the things that I've, I've seen happen. Um, I know business owners who have been pressured to bend traditional beliefs about sexuality rather than given permission to express them, which is what a tolerant culture should do, and then some of which have considered leaving the business um, they love for the sake of Christian convictions. I know of Episcopalian priests um, who were forced to resign, losing their retirement and their ordination um, because the bishop at the time was forcing them to perform weddings that they didn't feel in their convictions that they could do. I know teenagers and college students who were humiliated by friends or teachers uh, for holding Christian convictions in conversation or in the classroom. But in the end, those kinds of things are not the kinds of threats that the early church has experienced. Yes, they're pressures. Yes, they're antagonism. But it's not the same kind of thing that they're experiencing in their culture. When you're the majority religion in a mostly tolerant culture, as we are, most of the threats that we experience are actually nothing more than threats to cultural dominance, which is scary to a lot of people. Whenever whoever's in charge, whether it's the Christians or somebody else, begins to perceive that we're losing that, people get scared. It's why in the next couple of days as we approach November 6th, you'll probably see ads in your mailbox or see ads on television about taking back the country or we're one nation under God, dang it, you know, and all these kinds of things like if we could just get God back in the schools, that's coming from the majority fearing what happens when we have to be pushed down um, to where everybody else is. But sometimes here's what's happened. This is why I made that aside. When we read a text like this in Acts chapter 4, sometimes what happens is people say, okay, now let's talk about how we're experiencing the same thing, how we're experiencing persecution. When in reality, we're experiencing nothing close to what Christians around the world and Christians back then actually experienced. And what happens is if we say we're experiencing the same thing, we're actually trivialized what they experience and what Christians in Egypt are experiencing. But even if we admit that we're mostly tolerated and that we're in the majority still, that doesn't have to change the way we respond. Um, it doesn't have to mean that we respond any differently than a church that is threatened. So in Acts chapter 4, verse 24, getting back to this, it says, when, or it, says, um, it says, On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priest and the elders had said to them. So they told them, here's all the threats. And they said, when they heard this, the church, when they heard this, there was a couple options for how they could respond. There were a couple options for how they could respond. The first is one that Peter subscribed to earlier in his life. You could find some swords, right? Whenever people threaten you with violence, sometimes the natural gut response is like, let's be violent back. If not with physical violence, maybe we could be violent with our vocabulary and we could tear people down. And so that's actually what Peter did at one point. If you remember back in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter actually cut a guy's ear off trying to defend Jesus. He's like, they're going to be violent. I'm going to be violent. And then Jesus says, if you live by the sword, you're going to die by it. And so Peter from then on was like, okay, maybe that's not the right strategy for dealing with threats and antagonism. Um, but some of us still today have this mentality that when the church feels threatened or when, when people are saying things about the church to respond, sometimes with physical violence, other times even just with violence with our words, especially online. The second thing, though, that some churches tend to do when this happens is they circle the wagons. 
They say, well, okay, let's just lay low for a while, right? Let's not go on the offensive. Let's go on the defensive. Let's just sit still. Let's, let's be vague about what, what we talk about. Let's not talk about Jesus. Let's not talk about certain issues that seem to be more offensive than others. Um, and, and so let's, let's just circle the wagons up a bit and try to keep calm and get through this. And then eventually we can get back out there in front again. But as we know from Peter, this wasn't an option, right? He said, we can't help but speak about what we've seen and heard. Circling the wagons wasn't an option. Another option, one that I see often, is to simply go the church. Um, ghost is one of my favorite verbs. Now some of you have never heard it in a verb format. Um, but to ghost someone is, according to Urban Dictionary, to avoid someone until they get the picture and stop contacting you. Some of you are like, oh, that's what she's been doing to me. Like that's, I'm just giving you some vocabulary to make sense of your life. But again, that's happened to me in ministry over the past couple years where somebody that's been a part of our church for a while just disappears and then they don't respond to text or calls. Um, and I don't know what to do about it, but basically I've been ghosted. But I can imagine somebody in the, in the early church when Peter and John come back and they're like, hey, here's the threats. I can imagine some guy, you know, we'll call him Tony. Tony's like, hey guys, just going to go to the bathroom real quick and uh, I'll be right back. And then just takes off and just is done with that church. Um, Because again, that's what the tendency is sometimes when there's pressure on the church. Just be like, maybe I'll find something um, else that's less offensive. But the fourth option, the one that we see the early church practice is to simply fold our hands and to pray. Instead of finding some swords Instead of circling the wagons, instead of ghosting the church, there's another option. It says, when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer. Everyone say prayer. Prayer to God. So there's a lot of options for how can we respond. But this is what, if we're taking our lead from the early church, this is how they responded to these kinds of things. And we get a little bit of a window into how they prayed. The first thing they do is they remind themselves of who God is and what God has said. Notice they open the prayer by saying, Sovereign Lord. They didn't open with gracious Lord, loving Lord, kind Lord, steadfast Lord, faithful Lord. All those things would have been true. Rather, they open with sovereign Lord. I have to admit, I've never opened a prayer with sovereign Lord before. But why did they start there? Because that was the characteristic of God. They were identifying the characteristic of God that was most relevant to the situation they were experiencing. To remember that God is sovereign is to remember that these authorities weren't in control of their life. To remember that God is sovereign was to remember that they didn't need to fear earthly authorities because they knew they had a heavenly authority who was stronger in controlling all of history. They identified God by the characteristic that was most relevant to the situation they were experiencing. That's true for all of us when we pray. When you're coming before the Lord in prayer, identify him by an aspect of your character that you need to, or aspect of his character that you need to remember, that you need to remember. And then they say this. It says, you spoke by the Holy Spirit, going down a little bit. It says, you spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. And then they quote Psalm 2. It says, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed. In other words, what they're saying is long before all of this happened, God, through the mouth of David, hundreds of years earlier, has already said this is, what people, this is how people are going to respond to, what, what, to God's reign and to his way of ordering the world. God has seen this coming. And so they're reminding themselves of who God is and what he said. The second thing they do, though, is they remind themselves of what happened to Jesus, right? They're ordinary people learning to live everyday life like Jesus. So what happened to Jesus? It says, and they're still praying at this point. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your servant Jesus, whom you anointed. In other words, what they're saying is, look, this is the same thing that happened to him. 
what we're experiencing with everybody conspiring against us, no matter which, which side of the aisle you're on, everybody conspiring against us, is the same kind of thing Jesus was experiencing. So why would we expect anything different? In fact, Peter, writing years later to the church who's also experiencing something like this, says this, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. What Peter is saying there is, look, we ought not to be surprised by this kind of stuff. This is exactly what Jesus said would happen. In fact, when things are going well for Christians, it's an anomaly in history. It's not supposed to be the normal. It might be a privilege or an opportunity for a while, but it's not the, the promise that God has given to us. So they remind themselves of what happened to Jesus. But the third thing is they start to ask God for a few things. It says this, Lord, consider their threats. Consider their threats. So the first thing they say, God, we want you to listen to these threats so we don't have to. It's like, imagine if you were being bullied in school um, or something like that, and you went to your big brother and said, I just want to let you know what these guys are saying to me. And now from then on, it's your brother's responsibility and not your own. That's what's happening here with the Lord. They're saying, Lord, consider their threats. We're surrendering them to you. And now we don't have to figure out how we're going to respond because you're going to take care of us. The second thing, though, is they ask for a new ability. They say, and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Everyone say boldness. That's kind of our theme word that's coming out of this. Or enable your word, our servants to speak your word with great fearlessness or to, with daring and with bravery and with courage. And they ask the Lord to fill them with boldness. Notice Peter doesn't come back and give them a halftime speech and say, here's why we need to get back out there and be bold. Rather, they go to their knees and they pray before the Lord because they know that guts have to come from outside of them. They know that boldness has to be something that has to be deposited in them through the Holy Spirit. So they ask God to fill them up. And finally, they ask God to authenticate their message. They say this, stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. When God was healing people through the apostles, it wasn't just because he was having a good time, right? I'm sure he enjoyed it, right? But it wasn't just because he's like, I'm just going to heal so-and-so today at random. Rather, what he was doing with healing is he was authenticating the gospel that the, that, that, that the apostles were preaching. That when the apostles were going around and they're saying, God has come, his kingdom has arrived. That in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we are in a new kingdom that is unfolding. Darkness is being pushed back. Healing is being brought forth. And they're preaching this message. How do you prove that that's true? You see healing happen. You see demons pushed out. You see people's lives being changed. And that's what they're asking for. God, stretch out your hand. Authenticate our message. And so again, instead of finding swords, instead of circling the wagons, instead of ghosting the church, the early Christians went before God in prayer when they were threatened. And we ought to do the same even when we're tolerated. They reminded themselves of who God is and what God has said. They reminded themselves of what happened to Jesus, and they asked God for a new awareness, a new ability, and authentication. And then something surprising happened. It says in Acts chapter 4, verse 31, the last verse in our passage for today. It says, After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. So let that sit for a second. Does that sound familiar to anyone? If you've been walking through this series with us so far, a very similar verse happens in Acts chapter 2, verse 1 through 4, where it says the church is praying, and then the place where they were meeting was also shaken. And then they were enabled with the power and presence of the Holy Spirit of God to begin to preach in other languages as the Spirit was enabling them. And now we see that happen again. 
to many of the same people happening here in Acts chapter 4. It looks like they're being filled again with the Holy Spirit. Now, this seems to be a normal part of the Christian life. Not just to be filled with the Spirit one time, but to be filled with the Spirit again and again and again as God wants to enable us with power. Um, I think one of the most important things to note about how the Holy Spirit worked in the early church is that receiving the gift of the Spirit wasn't just a one-time experience. But it was something that happened again and again and again in response to prayer. That you see, one of the things we talked about in week two of this series is that prayer is the link between the promise and the power. And you see that happen again here as they're filled up again. Sam Storms, a Reformed theologian, says it this way, there's always room for more of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And all we have to do is ask. And so again, what ends up happening though is the Holy Spirit fills them up in a very particular way. The Holy Spirit fills them up with courage. And I think it's important to note, again, I said this a second ago, is that guts aren't something you find inside yourself. You'd think that's true, right? That's how guts work. So you think guts are something you find inside yourself, but the reality is God has to give you these kind of guts. God has to fill you with this kind of boldness. God has to fill you with this kind of courage. It's not something you well up from the inside, but it's something God pours into us from the outside. And that's good news for those of you who would never describe yourself as courageous or bold. Some of you are like, I... I, if there's words that describe me or they are not courage and boldness, that's the, that's the great news of Jesus, is that God wants to fill you with that. So like the early disciples, you can be those ordinary people who are filled and doing unordinary things. And it wasn't just guts for anything. It was guts to evangelize and to share the word of God, as it says they did boldly. And we're going to talk more about that in the last week of this series. And so I just want to say, um, as we're kind of coming to a close, is that this is something that you can begin to pray right now, before we even talk about what it means for our church, is that there are churches around the world, like the one in Egypt, that are experiencing persecution and pain and suffering because of what they believe. And the reality is, we can get to our knees and begin to pray for them. What if in response to our church praying, what if some of you go home tonight and you begin to pray for churches around the world? Maybe a church in the Middle East or a church in Asia who is under threat because of what they believe. And what if in response to your prayer, God fills them with boldness and fearlessness? What if God has laid that responsibility on this church where we're in a tolerated place to begin to pray for those churches who are threatened that God might begin to fill them with power? What if some of you who commit to praying week after week after week for some of these places, God begins to fill people with boldness and you don't even get to see those results, but people are experiencing them. But even in our culture where Christianity is mostly tolerated, I think we could use some of these kinds of guts that the early church had. In fact, if we don't ask for boldness when we're tolerated, I doubt we're going to suddenly start asking for it when we're threatened. Now, courage and boldness doesn't mean that we're just needlessly offensive, right? The only thing, offensive thing about Christianity um, is, is the cross. That's really what the center of what the, our offense is as Christians. Um, but in the end, it might look like a couple of different things. It might look like asking God for the guts to associate yourself with Christians when other people make basic, baseless accusations about all Christians based on the actions of a few. I have to admit that there's been times recently with the news where a Christian has done something really stupid. Um, and I've had a hard time associating myself with the name of Christian because of what that person did. But it takes boldness to still call yourself a Christian in those moments. It might look like the guts to hold a uh, traditional Christian beliefs about sex or about Jesus, even when people accuse you of being extreme or intolerant or irrelevant, to actually hold these convictions. It might look like the guts to risk a relationship by sharing the gospel with somebody or inviting them to church. This Christmas, we're going to be doing a series that's going to be perfect for your family and friends who know nothing about Jesus. And my hope is that some, God gives some of us the guts to invite some people. Um, or it might look like having the guts to get baptized on November 18th. Um, we're going to have baptisms in here on November 18th. Um, and some of you guys are afraid of what your friends and family will think. But I guarantee you, if you ask him, God will already begin to fill you with the kind of boldness needed to get baptized. In the end, though, 
no matter what anyone says about the church, my prayer is that they can't say that we're a church that doesn't have guts, that we're a church that isn't bold and that isn't courageous. I want to go back to this verse. And I want us to begin to just think about some names we could fill in here. My prayer is that this would be a way of describing our church. Is that when they saw the courage of some of the people in here, when they saw the courage of, of, of Callie or Mark Andre or Cheryl or Andrew or Sam or Maya or somebody else, when they saw the courage of these people and they realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men and women, that they were astonished and they took note that these men and women had been with Jesus. That's my prayer for our church, is that we become ordinary people who are doing unordinary things that point to the extraordinary God that we have who has saved us in the person of Jesus Christ. In a moment, we're going to come to this table back here where we remember the good news that Jesus was fearless even when we were full of fear. We remember the good news that when he was threatened, he didn't back down. When he was beaten to the point of near death, he took it. And we remember the good news that that same power that filled Jesus now fills you and me. The same power that faced fear with boldness fills us. That his body was broken and his blood was poured out so that we could come into a kingdom where God is sovereign and he can fill us with boldness. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. If that teaching moved you or left you with questions, let us know by sending a message to hello at bellevuechristian.church. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast for a new teaching from us every single week.